Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Unseen Hand of God, with a message entitled, The Testing of Our Faith. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. know if you remember those days. Let's let's say you were in university and then came the time for that dreadful thing called exams, finals, tests. You know, I have a poem whose author remains unknown, but he or she, whoever that person was, well, understood the nature of those days. Let me read a part of that poem. And for you who remember your university days, you will no doubt identify with what is being said. And it came to pass early in the morning, toward the last day of the semester, that there arose a great multitude, smiting the books and wailing. And there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth, for the day of judgment was at hand. And they were sore afraid, for they had left undone those things which they ought to have done. And they had done those things which they ought not to have done. And there was no help for it. And there were many abiding in the dorm who kept watch over their books by night, but it availed them not. And they bemoaned their fate, but they had not a prayer. (laughs) Ah, yes, those dreaded tests. But did you know that God tests both believers and unbelievers? He deliberately puts hardships into the lives of people. And those hardships are often a test. Well, you might ask, like a test at school? Well, perhaps. Let me give an illustration. Years ago, I did teach at a Bible college, and I once had a student who came to my office quite upset. She had received her final mark, and it was a good deal lower than she had expected. She told me that she was not accustomed to getting lower marks, and then, to my surprise, she demanded I change the mark. Well, I calmly told her that I hadn't given her the mark. I said, you gave yourself the mark. I merely recorded it. (laughs) There is a way in which God's tests function exactly that way. I mean, after all, why should God test us? He knows fully what's in our hearts. Unlike a human instructor who wants to know what his or her students have learned, the divine instructor knows what we've absorbed. But like human tests, the divine tests are revealing. Let's give one example, this one from Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether or not you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, as I've noted, the Lord already knew which ones loved him and which did not. But when God decided he would allow a false prophet to have the ministry that he had, That false prophet exposed the true nature of the commitment of God's people to God's truth. Here's another example. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do You see, God not only exposes the true nature of our hearts when we face false teaching, heresy, popular preachers of false gospels. He also exposes what's in our hearts when we go through hardships, sufferings, disappointments, ongoing difficulties that just don't go away. God uses this to probe our hearts, 
Will we rest in his sovereign will, contenting ourselves in his wisdom, or will we rage against him? See, the hardships expose and instruct and teach us who we are. Now, for this reason, believers should not despise the day of testing. Psalm 26, verse 2, David wrote, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. That is, even if we fail the test, true believers will use that information. Well, they're going to repent. They're going to seek God for renewal. It's going to be a time to wait on God, to give new attitudes of faith that are oh so valuable to us. Had it not been for the tests, we would have carried on in our destructive attitudes without even knowing our own sinful hearts. Testing can expose all the fleshly attitudes that we have carelessly allowed to flourish. Things like jealousy and gossip, even areas of idolatry that we have permitted to remain in our lives, much like Israel's high places in the Old Testament. So consider James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So notice in this passage that testing does far more than expose the recesses of our hearts. Testing, that is, the very test itself, does something wonderful to the one who is being tested. Now, I know that. See, I can't remember all the tests that I've taken while I was pursuing my education. But I do know that the reality of tests forced me to study, forced me to memorize large amounts of material. It forced me to organize the material and to develop patterns of discipline. And these are the patterns that have stayed with me throughout my life. I wasn't happy about the tests at the time, but they did produce a very happy result in my life. And that's what James is saying. Count it all joy, he says, when hardships and trials come along. God is testing you, and his tests will produce steadfastness. So what does that mean? Well, he means that the hardship which is sent by God produces dedication, persistence, dependability. And here you're going to have to think about it. But if you successfully go through a test, it means that in the future, you won't crumble when things get tough. Testing will produce a resolve in you, and you will be a faithful child of God. And that's why James promises that in the end, if you withstand God's tests, you will be complete, he says, lacking nothing. So I notice then that Paul has something very important to say in regard to church leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, when he's talking about selecting deacons, he says, and let them also be tested first. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Well, he means to say that there is no way to determine the faithfulness of a man or a woman unless there's a test. Well, you might wonder why I'm speaking about this. I mean, given that this is a series on the life of Joseph and on the unseen hand of God, both in his life and in the life of the family of Israel. Well, the reason I raise this issue of testing is because there are many, when reading Genesis 44, Well, they misunderstand Joseph. They misunderstand his motives and the methods that he employs. You know, he's just feasted with his brothers, enjoying their presence. He's overwhelmed with deep emotion at the sight of his only full brother, Benjamin. And he has tested the brothers already. So he has given Benjamin five times more than he's given the others. 
And some of us reading this text wonder how it is that, even still, Joseph is hiding his identity from his family. Why will he only speak to them through an interpreter? And why the painful set of events that are yet to come in this chapter? And the answer has everything to do with what we've already learned about testing. Joseph wants to know several things. Who are his brothers? If he reveals himself to them, are they to be trusted? Will there be any time in the future when reconciliation is even possible? Is God at work in their lives, or are they who they've always been, the enemies of God? Only testing is going to bring that to light. And that's it, isn't it? I mean, people say a great many things. They confess to love Jesus, and then in a moment of opportunity, they'll commit adultery. They'll gossip. They'll steal. They'll even profane the sacred name. Words, as we know, are sometimes very cheap. Proverbs 10 verse 19 reminds us where words are many, sin is not absent. That's to say, people use words to cover up who they really are, what they really intend, whether or not they really can be trusted. Only testing will expose to Joseph and to us who read these accounts who these brothers truly are. What is their true character? And so Joseph has feasted with his brothers even while they only know him as the ruler of Egypt. Now to Genesis 44, 1-2. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. There's the test. Joseph is committed to creating one more crisis among his brothers, and he's going to target Benjamin in the crisis. What many would consider to be the most precious commodity of an Egyptian ruler, that is, his silver cup, is placed carefully into Benjamin's bag. And as we read this, we know what this is about. All of the brothers will look like they are guilty of theft, but Benjamin will look like he has committed the greatest theft of all. In light of the kindness of the ruler of the land, these men will now look like ungrateful thieves, and Benjamin will look altogether brazen. That would be the test. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, well, this month we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at one 800 That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca. As the brothers prepare to leave Egypt and head for home, they must have been overwhelmed with their success. The ruler of the land regards them as friends. Simeon has been returned to them. He's no worse for the wear. Benjamin will go back safe and sound without incident, and the fear their father expressed will be unrealized. No doubt they will be thought of as heroes when they get home. 
couldn't have turned out better. But of course, the brothers don't know the drama that yet lies before them. It's a drama that will be the greatest test of their lives. Genesis 44, verses 3 to 5. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done an evil thing in doing this. So it's quite likely that the cup in question is the very cup that Joseph has been drinking from on the night before. Now comes the revelation that this is also his cup of divination. It seems to have been a practice in both Egypt and in other parts of the ancient Near East to use a cup to practice what has been called hydromancy. Oil would be poured on top of water, and then one would carefully observe the patterns that were formed. Practitioners of this art would claim that they could determine the mind of the gods from the patterns and with reference to the future. And of course, as we know today, trying to determine what the future holds, you know, whether nations are developing strategies that will guide them in their foreign policy or how the stock market will perform or what crisis is lying on the horizon. Well, knowing the future is absolutely essential to governing well. We all need to know the future. And the ruler of Egypt is giving the impression that these men, in an act of hardened self-centeredness, have not only stolen from him, but they have taken from him a crucial tool that was necessary to do his work. And any ancient ruler would view this act as a grave threat against his rule. And so the question of stealing his divination cup makes the rest of the theft seem quite small in comparison. If we don't understand that as the central drama, we really miss how important this moment is. This is no simple crime. This is a capital crime. So let's continue to read verses 6 to 9. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Now this moment is so serious that the brothers begin with a lesser argument and then they gradually move to a most serious argument. And every step of the way is designed to establish their innocence. The first plank in the debate is that they've already brought money back from before. If they had done that, why would they steal now? It makes no sense. The second argument builds on the first. If we wouldn't steal money, I mean, how in the world would we think of stealing the cup? And now the third argument, an argument that will serve to condemn them, although at the time they don't know it. We think, they say, any person who steals that cup should die. And if we think that, why would we do it? And with that, in an instant, their world comes crumbling in around their ears. The test we spoke of earlier is now underway. I'm reading verses 10 to 13, which starts with Joseph Stewart speaking. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Oh, how quickly we've moved from reveling in the success of the trip to an unmitigated disaster. The incident begins with the steward brushing aside their speech. He wants evidence, not words. 
But as before, he is gracious. He's not going to put anyone to death. He will merely enslave the culprit for life, and that is gracious. And Moses makes no mention of the fact that each man had his own money in the sack. But that fact itself would have ended all protests of innocence. But as before, the steward shows no interest in the money at all. Joseph is overwhelmingly wealthy. He cares little about the money. But as each one's guilt is exposed, leaving them with nothing to say, suddenly it is, of all people, Benjamin, who will be sold as a slave. Of course, we already know this is the test. 20 years earlier, in an act of sheer hatred and jealousy, these brothers had sold Joseph into slavery for money. All they need now is to sell Benjamin into slavery as well. After all, Dad still has a favorite, and Joseph would no doubt be aware as to how painful this had been to the other ten. Twenty years later, will they still, when given a chance to sell the favorite into slavery, would they jump at it and would they do it? It's an interesting passage, a little sentence we might miss at the end of 2 Corinthians. Writing to the Corinthian Christians, a, a very difficult church, Paul in chapter 13, verse 5, commands this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And then in the next verse, he says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. There are ways of doing self-examination. There are ways of testing our own faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, those most likely to fail the test are least likely to volunteer to take the test. Self-delusion is always possible. There are those, as Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, verse 23, people who are confident that all is well, and yet he will tell them in the last day, I never knew you. Self-deception is so very possible, but tests, tests will reveal the nature of our inner being. It will show what we love and what we hate. It will reveal when we will sacrifice and when we will not. It will shine the light of God on all the evil that we had always wanted to hide in the darkness. Suddenly, through the test, a light comes on, and the darkness can no longer hide our sins. And here it is, another of Dad's favorites, ready to be sold off into slavery. Well, the pain, the pressure, and the thought of facing dad, who has already told them, if this boy doesn't come home, I will die in sorrow. What is now to be done? So let's come now to verses 14 to 17. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Well, we notice that it is Judah who takes the lead. He has already taken the lead by guaranteeing Benjamin's safety in the presence of his father. He has already promised that he would put his life on the line for his own brother. But as we've already said, words are easy. You know how easy it was for Peter to tell Jesus that he would gladly die for him. And he believed that about himself until the hour of testing came and a slave girl standing in the courtyard outside of where Jesus was being tried and condemned simply asked him, aren't you one of his man's followers? And then the man who said he would be honored to die with his master calls curses down on himself, and he says it's simply not true. I never knew that man. 
I categorically deny that I am his follower. And then when the heat of the trial is over, Peter runs out and weeps bitterly. The trial, the test, well, all of that has exposed what has always been there. He has always loved his life more than Jesus. He would deny Jesus before men, for he never valued the life of Jesus more than his own temporal life. And that was the awful moment for him. It crushed him, but the truth now lay before him. As I've said, tests don't need to condemn us. Peter would find forgiveness, and in the end, he himself would be nailed to a cross, for he would no longer deny the Savior who bought him. And that's what tests can produce. And you also, my dear friend, if you've failed a test, don't you despair. Thank God for the test, and now go to him and call upon him for mercy and call upon the Holy Spirit to transform your heart, and he will do it. The test will, in the end, perfect you. And this was Judah's moment. In an instant, he faces the test of his life. Previously, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. But since then, God has shown him his own sin. And really, Judah is now a new man. And now Judah will find out if he's really new or not. A test comes his way. Do you, my friend, fear the hour of testing? Please don't. For Joseph, like the God who instructed him to test his brothers, tests us for our good. And once we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life. John, uh, I ask you this question because I've, I've done it myself. But what should we do when we fail the test uh, that God has given us? We've fallen, we've stumbled. One of the things we must be careful never to do, never to do when we fail the test, is to despair. I mean, despair is the enemy of faith and it is the enemy of our growth into Christ. Uh, the enemy of our soul, Satan himself, wants us to despair and then wants us to believe that God has cast us aside because we failed so miserably and therefore we're unworthy of grace. Well, truth be known, you are unworthy of grace. And that's why you need grace. You need Jesus to be faithful to you where you have not been faithful to him. So we need to thank God for showing us this and, and we need to throw ourselves again on his grace and trust in him that he is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. Do those things, you'll learn. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.